Today I'd talk a little bit about um, history of, of what's often called Bayesian inference these days, particularly subjective probability. Uh, so I, I work, as, as John mentioned, across applied maths, uh, statistics, and, and physics. In fact, I, I live in a physics department now, and I teach electronics to people, teach them how to build things. Um, and uh, it's it's kind of interesting, I, I grew up in a physics department in terms of my Bayesian work, in terms of doing work in probability, uh, and uh, there's quite a strong culture there uh, of what it means to do subjective probability, um, and, and it's quite distinct to what a statistician thinks about, at least the history of subjective probability. So, um, so when I talk to my statistician friends, they tell me about how Bayesian methods were invented by certain sets of statisticians, and to me, that's a completely uh, separate group of, of people and influences than that got me going. Uh, so I thought I'd show you that, uh, um, the, the way that, that physicists like I think of uh, subjective probability and indeed the history of it. Um, so I, I used this image, um, so, so I should say that, that for a long period of time, um, physicists doing Bayesian methods were kind of the laughing stock of the laughing stock. Uh, so, uh, Bayesian methods have been out of fashion in statistics for the best part of a century. Um, but when I was a student learning statistics in Auckland, uh, so this would have been the early 80s, late 70s, uh, probably you wouldn't even know, a, statistics, a student of statistics anywhere in the world at the time would not have known that the Bayesian notion of probability even existed. It had been kind of erased from the, uh, from the collective consciousness of statisticians uh, I, I kind of learned it in a strange way, which I was reading books on, on, on mathematical statistics, and a lot of the manipulations were done using Bayesian methods, but then they'd have this caveat that said, of course you can't do that because it's philosophically wrong, but, but somehow the mathematics seemed fine. Uh, and being a physicist and not knowing much about what you ought to do in statistics, I thought, now, hang on a minute, that looks perfectly sensible, and, and off we go. And indeed, I ended up working in a group um, of, of what Brian Ripley called Bayesian statisticians, uh, Bayesian physicists, I should say, which was kind of a means of saying they were not doing the proper thing or something. But at that time, even then, um, Bayesian statistics was, was certainly not mainstream in the broader statistics and, and um, uh, some, somewhat ridiculed. In fact, I, I still occasionally run across this. I still occasionally go somewhere to do it in an industrial setting where I do Bayesian statistics. And somebody who was schooled in another version of statistics comes along to see what this odd freak looks like. You know, what is this person with three ears who thinks that the earth is flat and that water flows up and stuff like that. Uh, so I think that's largely gone away because of computation. Um, but, but I thought I'd show you some of these ideas about, about where these things came from. And I chose this image of um, this kind of digitally brain thing uh, just because the main, main issue of subjective uh, probability is, is that it reflects uh, a state of knowledge. So probability is thought of as something about, the, about what we know about the world, not this kind of notion of randomness that, uh, where it says that probability is somehow uh, to do with events happening multiply and, and with the frequency of their outcome. So, so it kind of turns the whole business inwards. 
so when I, I first gave a talk along these lines, I um, so uh, I was first talking to uh, some first-year physicists at Otago about it, and and I started by kind of an unusual place uh, about this joke. So this is a kind of physics joke, you know. Uh, it's a bad joke, you know, like all subject-based jokes, it's terrible. Uh, but, but, you know, there's a thing that physicists say, which is um, they put up Maxwell's equations and they say, uh, you know, there's a great set of equations and say, and they, they misquote Genesis and say, God said, blah, blah, and then and they're like, of course, these are, are what we call Maxwell's equations um, uh, governing electromagnetics. So if you're not familiar with these, E is, is the electric field and B is the magnetic field, and, and away you go. This stuff... Um, predicts that something propagates, an electromagnetic wave propagates with the speed of light, and the whole the explained light. Um, well, of course, it wasn't God who said this. And actually, being, a, being in the electronics world, I should also say um, Maxwell didn't write these equations. This, this was done by an electrical engineer called Oliver Heaviside. Uh, Maxwell wrote a, a lengthy 19 equation thing that you and I would know. This beautiful form uh, was done by Heaviside, who uh, did all sorts of other remarkable things, but that's a, that's another that's another question. So as I say, it wasn't written by God; it was written by, by this chap, um, uh, James Clerk Maxwell, um, who, if you see by his age, uh, by the time he was as old as I, he was had been dead for eight years. So uh, he was a remarkable was a remarkable thing. Um, so Newton, you know, when when Newton was um, in one of his moments of humility, said, you know, if I see further, it's because I stand on the shoulders of giants, that kind of thing. And somebody asked Einstein once, oh, is that, you know, have you seen further because you stand on the shoulders of giants? And he said, no, 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 I'm standing on the shoulders of Maxwell. And so he was very clear about this. Um, so I think Maxwell gets a lot of credit for an awful lot of things. I mean, he did things in this relatively short lifetime that were exciting. Uh, so, so that little example I showed you, those equations, that unified... Electricity, magnetism, and optics. I mean, as a as a thing to do in your life, that's quite a good achievement. Um, but he did lots of other things as well. So he produced his kinetic theory of gases, um, and and this maybe is the start of the, the story that I want to tell you, because the kinetic theory of gases became statistical physics, um, and. It had several very important roles. So one of them was the introduction of probability into physics that allowed the form of quantum mechanics that we now think. So many think people think Maxwell as being kind of one of the originators of that kind of thing. He was the first person really to be a mathematical physicist to, to say, I believe I can explain it by this mathematical structure. How, how does that go? Uh, you know, what predictions does that make? Can I validate that? But certainly one of those was this kinetic theory of gases. So he said to himself, um, how, how do all the particles of gas in this, in this room move? What can, what can I say about them? And uh, by, by a pure process of thought, so not by experiment or anything, by a process of thought, uh, he came up with a distribution of over the velocity of particles in the gas, and from that was able to predict all sorts of physical properties. So this was the first time that somebody had come up with a theory that kind of had a microscopic description that then gave macroscopic predictions that you could, you could test using macroscopic stuff. And, and really it's that thing that, is, uh, that I think is the, <coughs> the start and maybe even one of the saving graces, one of the, the thing that, that made Bayesian methods able to come back uh, after kind of being in the wilderness for a while. And, 
and I'll show you why that is. So this has two kind of very important roles in, in the future of Bayesian statistics. Uh, so, so the first of them, I would say, is that this business of forming a, a, his distribution over the motion of particles of gas is it's the first time that somebody built a, what we would now call a prior distribution, by pure thought process. So they, they used reasons of symmetry, um, of, of constraints and so forth, reasonableness perhaps even, to come up with a distribution over, well, you know, how many, lots of particles, the 10 to the 20 particles of, of gas in this room, um, and come up with a, with a specific distribution over the velocities that had to be correct because of physical rules. So it's what we would think of as generating a prior distribution by certain sets of rules. So that's really what statistical physics is. Statistical physics in our language is generating prior distributions, looking at predictive densities, and then making statements about that. And that's what he did. So he made a distribution over the motion of, of particles and tested those by experiment. And we'll have a look at some of those experiments in a second. So just to, just to kind of enforce this, so what was this notion of, of probability that he used? Well, yeah, you know, I was going to show you this picture. So, um, so this was just, so I, I did my PhD work in the Cavendish Laboratory and just down the corridor, I was in radio astronomy, so actually that, that picture you can see just hidden by this, this contraption here is a picture of a radio telescope. So that probably had something to do with why I took this picture, but actually what's, so here's, here's Maxwell's desk, isn't that jolly nice? Uh, but actually the thing that's really important is this bit of contraption here. Uh, and so this was the device that Maxwell helped built to test one of his predictions that, that from his kinetic theory that said that the viscosity of gas is independent of the pressure, which seems like a completely unreasonable thing to say. You would think that as you get less pressure, the viscosity would go down, something like that. But his prediction said, uh, made this macroscopic prediction, he built this thing here, or at least had somebody built it for him, it has some discs that rotate, measures the viscosity, he can pump this thing out by this thing here, and there's some measuring stuff that goes on up here. And away you go, uh, it, so it validated his theory. So he came up with this preposterous distribution over the 20 to the 20 particles in this room, made some predictions based on it, built a kit, found out that the predictions were correct, and lo and behold, uh, as we physicists do, this became physical law. So it moves from a good idea to being law. And, uh, and indeed, so this, was, so this was the bit of kit that tested his, uh, his distribution and I, I should say, actually, that Maxwell was a remarkable character. So, so this, this bit of kit looks well enough made that I'm, I'm presuming engineers and workshop people in the Cavendish built them for. But his first version of this was a kind of a manometer arrangement that he built in his attic with his wife. That they used as a kind of quick gamming up to test to see if the theory was reasonable. Um, I think that says something about him, about his lack of social life. Something, you know, but he was what testing these theories in their attic. Uh, but anyway, that's another issue. Um, but, but what I wanted to show you was, was, you know, what was Maxwell's concept of probability? When I talked about he, he makes this probability distribution over the gases in this room, what did he think probability was? Well, he very clearly said this. So he said, true logic of the world is the calculus of probabilities, which takes into account the magnitude of probability, which is or ought to be in a reasonable person's mind. So. And this was written a while ago, so it has lots of gender-specific names, so I removed some of them. Um, but, but basically the idea of what is probability, it's, 
it's the, the so, you know, if, if you consider this notion of a reasonable person, so what does that mean? That they're, con that they're consistent, that they're logical, those kind of things. Then they must be forced to some notion of, um, of probability in, in their thinking, and, and this is the quantity that he was manipulating. So, so when he manipulated, when he built a probability distribution over the uh, motion of, of gas in this room, he wasn't saying gas moves like this, and if you sample from this probability distribution, there's different kind of measures of, you know, that, that there's some kind of randomness and it moves in different ways. It's a kind of randomness version that we might think of these days. What he was saying was, no, this is what is knowable about the velocities in the gas. So he's very clear about that. He actually went on to say a bunch of other things if you've read this. I mean, essentially, um, you know, he, he said this, that it's, this is the branch of mathematics that has to do with gamble and dicing and wagering and, and therefore is immoral, but in fact it's the only one that is really correct. And, and I think that's, that's true. I mean, I, you know, people ask me what probability is. At some level it's the amount you're willing to gamble on something. And that's what it is. Probably, you know, it's gambling. And, and at that level, Maxwell and I are saying the true language of science is gambling. And I believe that to be the case. I think, I think that's, that's exactly what it is. He also went on to say a bunch of other things, you know, mathematicians ought to take to heart, that, you know, if anybody thinks that they know something, well, you know, that's faith, and, and that's kind of a lesser version of things. And, of course, even children can work out that, that people are liars, you know, that if they claim to know something, basically they're a liar. Uh, so, so I think this is kind of interesting, that, um, you know, it, it's clear that that Maxwell built statistical physics on, on what we would think of subjective probability. It's this notion that probability represents what you know, not <coughs> something about randomness in the world. And, and, and that's, a, that's a kind of a, um, interesting thing. So, so, you know, Maxwell didn't do this from scratch. He built it on, on a notion of probability that uh, Laplace had constructed. So, so you know, Laplace did all sorts of great mathematical work, but in fact about the first thing that he did, first published paper, was actually this, this theory of probability in which he laid out what we would now call Bayes' Rulement, Bayesian statistics. Um, probably the, and, and then he did all sorts of wacky things, you know, he, he decided that you should use it to work out which problems you want to work on, and which things are important for civic purposes. And, uh, the other thing I like is that, you know, if you directly translate what he called mathematical expectation, what we would call means or expectation down. He called it mathematical hope. So I thought that was quite nice, you know. So, uh, but, but maybe the main thing that he did um, that, that wasn't so great, it was good enough for his purposes. So Laplace worked in an area that we would think of as few parameters and lots of data. Uh, but, but so, so this theory of probability tells you how to manipulate probabilities, but not at all how to assign them. And so Laplace used this, this thing that he called the principle of insufficient reason that says if I can't tell the difference between two events, then I give them equal probability. So that's the thing that would say, you know, you have a fair coin, I can't tell the difference between heads and tails, so I have to say a half a half. If I have dice with uh, six sides and it's somehow symmetric, I have to say six to six to six. And so by itself that seems reasonable, but um, but really it was exactly this that got the whole business into <coughs> trouble. Um, and, and uh, well, yeah, so, so first of all, I'll just show you a little uh, Venn diagram argument for Bayes' rule. 
in case you haven't run across manipulation of conditional probabilities. So, um, when I was growing up in the world, uh, people were very keen to tell me that this diagram is false, um, which it is, because it doesn't contain natural factors and all sorts of other things. But, but it's good enough. It can work. Uh, so, so, to explain uh, Bayes' rule, which is kind of the basis of all this business, all you have to do is look at some diagram like this that kind of represents events. So here's the universe somehow, and there's two possible events, A and B, and you look at this area here that's, um, uh, that when both A and B happen, so the, these events, and you ask yourself, well, how can you write this? And, and if you look at this event uh, uh, and you think of it as being a subset of A, you can write the probability of, of uh, A and B divided by the probability of B, which kind of normalizes it, gives you this, this probability of being an A when you already knew you were in B. So, so this form here, and if I did it the other way around, I say, what's the chance of being in here, given you know, reference to being an A, I end up with another formula like this, and of course this A and B uh, probability are the same, but by a little bit of manipulation, I end up with this rule here. So it's a straightforward rule of conditional probabilities that says, if I want to know the probability of, of being an A, given that I know that I'm in B, well, ultimately it's about being in this region here. I can rewrite it in terms of these other probabilities, the probability of B given A, so, so the point is that I can write the conditional probability for A given B in terms of the one the other way around. And so this is this is the reason that uh, this stuff was originally called inverse probability, um, which I think is probably a better name than Bayesian statistics and Bayesian analysis, those kind of things. But it really has to do with the swapping of conditional probabilities. So it says if, if you can tell me conditional probabilities one way around. Uh, if, if I know this thing about uh, how likely it is to be in B given A, I can tell you actually what it is the other way around. Yeah. Now, the reason people use this is that, um, oh yeah, you know, I thought I'd tell you a bit more about the physics. Sorry, I forgot about this. Um, so, so this, this ruler, as I say, was kicking around um, uh, since, well, since the time of Bayes, but more particularly since the time of Laplace. As I say, it was the, it was the notion of uh, it was the interpretation of probability and this manipulation that Maxwell used in his work. Um, and, but it kind of fell into disfavor, but not so much in the physics world. So, so a lot of people talk about the disfavor of uh, Bayesian methods in the statistics world, but somehow quietly along in the physics world, all of this stuff kept going, and, and partly because uh, it was kind of enshrined in statistical physics, um, it, it was experimentally verified, and so people started asking about, well, are there other possibilities? Is this the thing that you have to do? And for us physicists, anyway, it's the work of Richard Phelps in about uh, 1940 or so that people point to and saying, well, yes, this is the thing you must do. So, so there was a bit of a debate going on at the time about, are you allowed to use this formula or not allowed to use this formula, this kind of thing. So uh, Richard Cox did the opposite. He said, well, if you're going to have inductive reasoning, um, what must its calculus be? And, and so there's, so he said, well, what are the properties that inductive reasoning must have? Now, probably the one thing that he did uh, that, that, you know, you might think about as being, um, uh, you know, having other possibilities was he said this thing, uh, so he called it plausibility uh, to, to avoid some kind of, um, you know, conflict with people who use the word probability. Um, but he said, well, let's, let's say you rank plausibility uh, of a statement as a real number. So, so I, I collect some data and I'm trying to decide whether some statement is true or not. And, and what he said was, well, let's rank these statements by a single real number. 
uh, number of places. Now, now already there, there's something that, I, I don't know, that, uh, uh, people who have their careers in front of them might think, well, that's a bit dubious, because, you know, when you and I rank things like, uh, you know, a dinner or a restaurant, a piece of music or something, it's unlikely that we have a single number, a linear scale of good and bad. We probably have several, several things that we that we uh, think are important. So in some sense, um, you, you know, maybe this is dubious. Uh, maybe, maybe you want a, a different kind of calculus that says probabilities aren't single numbers, but they're kind of collections of numbers in them. Well, anyway, that's, a, that's another issue. But if you stick to this world where you say I'm going to rank statements in terms of more likely, less likely, and they have to behave sensibly, and, and, and uh, really that, that's kind of shorthand for saying if you collect more data, you know more. So, so that's, that's a thing that you need to be able to do. And he also said that, that all routes determine the possibility of giving that same result. So if you argue this way or this way or this way, it gives you the same number. Okay. Now, if, if you do these things, if you think these are good ideas, these kind of consistency ideas, then a bit of functional uh, analysis shows you that, functional equations show that, that if that is the case, then this ranking that you can call the possibility has to be manipulated this way. Yeah, it has to be manipulated by those rules. There's a, little, there's a little caveat there, actually, that to some power, to the nth power, this rule holds. Yeah, so if you have probabilities, maybe you have to raise them to the square before you do this, but then you just call the square of your probability the, the plausibility of your ranking. Yeah. So, so Cox came along and said, well, if you're going to have calculus of inductive reasoning that has these properties, it has to be this. That's it. That's the only one. Which, which to a physicist, is, is jolly useful. Um, because, for instance, in the, in, the, in the early times of quantum mechanics, there was a big conundrum about what probability means. How do you manipulate probability? You have events where you, where you propagate probability of time, observations that seem to affect your observations. Well, all of that stuff is, you know, yeah, but it sucks to you, it's all irrelevant. You either do it this way or you do it wrong. So, so in a certain sense, it says when you make observations, you must modify your probabilities in this way. Any other technique must break these rules. Maybe the world breaks these rules. But, but if you want to obey these rules, this is what you have to do. Um, actually, there's an interesting aspect about this. Some people then have got off and said, well, do, do humans, do we obey these rules? You know, do, we, do we do this thing? And the answer is clearly no. Uh, and so, so humans are clearly inconsistent in, in, in some of the sense. And, um, <clears throat> Some statisticians like to think that means that we're deficient. I like to think that that means that we've developed some superior version of, of operation than given the rules. So this tells us how you're allowed to manipulate probability, uh, but says nothing about how you assign it. So that's I should say, actually, also, when I, was, when I was growing up in this world, there was some kind of move by, by, uh, by physicists to split off from the world of statistics. There was a whole bunch of controversy. And they were going to call their big P plausibility after this theory. So they were going to talk about plausibility. Statisticians could have the word probability. And I'm pleased to say that didn't happen because that was kind of silly. Because as it turns out, it really doesn't matter how you get to these things, you have to manipulate So, uh, so, so why, do, why do people use this? Well, well, the reason is that you can think of the space rule as a way of learning. You know, of updating your knowledge. So, so let's say that P of A is some probability of A. So, so in the subjective world, we think of that as our state of knowledge about A. The full distribution gives us a state of knowledge about A. 
And, and that's probably the defining aspect of subjective probability. People say it's other things about your modeling and prior distributions, but, but really it's this notion that uh, you describe uncertainty or things that you don't know by probability distribution, by like as random variables, probability distributions, and, and that's everything that you do and that's all that you do. Yep. And so, so let's say you have this probability distribution about A, uh, you observe B, some data B, and then the question is how does that update your knowledge of A? Perhaps, perhaps B has some information about A. What, what, what have you learned? Well, well, the answer is Bayes' rule, and, and what do you do? Well, you determine this P of B given A, given that formula. Yep. So it's the probability of B if A, A is true. And, and in our world, in the physics world, that's done by modeling and simulation. So by, by modeling of the observation process, uh, uh, you can often characterize that distribution by simulation, <coughs> if you like. So there's means of doing that in an algebraic group. It, it's just the formula we showed before. And so that means that um, probability of A given B, now you're updated. Uh, knowledge uh, A, once you've measured B, is this posterior probability, so it's your updated state. And as I say, Maxwell's reasonable person must modify their knowledge display when they measure their information. Yep. So, so that's, that's kind of what we do. I mean, that's, that's kind of the reason this thing's called basic methods, because people use this basic formula, but um, it's kind of a slightly odd name. Uh, so I thought I'd just talk a little bit about um, assigning probability. So, so Maxwell did this job of taking some huge problem where uh, you knew nothing about it and coming up with a single function that must represent the probability distribution over the velocity particles. So, so he did it, so it must be possible somehow, nature must do it somehow. Uh, so the question is, you know, how do you do that in general? Well, I thought I'd show you this, this Probability, this, the so-called Bertrand par paradox. So this was exactly the problem that uh, was brought up by somebody called Bertrand that, that scuppered Laplace, um, put all this stuff into a tailspin, and, and so forth. And, and, and so here's, here's the problem here. So this, this is a problem stated in the 1850s. It's you know, so a pretty old thing. So, so Bertrand asked this thing. He said, let's say you've got an equilateral triangle. So there's this gray thing in here drawn inside a circle. And I throw down a chord at random. So I have a stick and I chuck it onto the circle at random in some sense. And so here's the question to you. What's the probability that the chord is longer than the side of the triangle? So that is to say, that the, so you see, see these red ones are longer because they kind of lie within the triangle. So their sides are longer. These blue ones here are shorter because they don't lie outside the triangle. So, so if I throw down a stick at random, what's the probability it's like one of these red ones and one of these blue ones? Sensible question. And so Bertrand observed the following. He said, it depends what you mean by at random. So, so here's, my three, here's his three versions of random. So he said, well, let's say I think of the endpoints as random. So, so by symmetry, I can fix one of the endpoints, this one up here. Yeah, and I choose some point uniformly on the circle that gives me the other endpoint. Yeah, well, just by simple uh, symmetry arguments, you can see that there's a length here. That's the same as that one. That's the same as that. If the other endpoint ends up here or here, it's shorter than the triangle. If it ends up here, it's longer. So one third will end up here, two thirds will end up there. So the answer to the question must be one third. There you go, the answer is a third. Okay, well here's another kind of random. What happens if the, the midpoint, uh, sorry, the radius uh, of the, the line is a random? Oh. So, 
So by symmetry, I can draw all the lines as straight like this. I throw the stick on somewhere, and I'm going to just move it to the, to the place where it's perpendicular to this, this radius here. And if I make the radius uh, uniformly at random, yep, then half of them will lie inside, then half of them outside. So the answer is a half. Here's another one that says, okay, well, let's say the midpoint is uniformly at random in the area. So I throw down the midpoint and then I draw a chord through it. Any midpoint that ends up in the inside of the circle will be longer. Any midpoint that ends up outside of that circle will be longer. And since this circle, which is a half the radius, is a quarter of the area, the answer is a quarter. So you can get any of these answers, a third or half quarter, depending what you mean by uniformly random. And all of these satisfy Laplace's principle of indifference. Because in the parameterization we've used for the problem, each of these prior distributions is uniform. So here was the observation that, that Bertrand made. He said, looky, looky, if I change my coordinate system, so I change what I mean by random, and I apply Laplace's principle of difference, I get different answers. And that clearly can't be right. So, so that was that. Laplace was expelled from the French Academy. <laughs> uh, no, he really was. He was really expelled from the French Academy because of this example. And, um, you know, so that whole thing of the bus equation and all that stuff, forget that. That's nonsense. Check them out. Everything's gone. Uh, and statistics went into some kind of tailspin for a while. Um, well, the, I mean, very sensible tailspin because, uh, um, you know, the, the notion was that if somehow choosing your coordinate system gave you different answers, that can't be the, the calculus for uncertain events that we want. So what else can we do? How can we, how can we remove this choice from the business? of statistics, and, and indeed that's what kind of the modern, what you might call frequentist uh, versions of statistics try to do. <coughs> so, so an interesting thing about this, this problem is that actually it's perfectly resolvable. So, so the fact that Bertrand couldn't work out the answer, and indeed people at the time couldn't work out the answer, doesn't mean there isn't an answer. So for instance, if you do this experiment, you, you get an answer. You know? And people do do this experiment. So, so maybe you've seen those kung fu movies where the guy can throw the you know, the straw, 100 meters, and it goes into the tree, exactly. You know, like that. And then he throws the next one, and it goes into the tree. Well, that happens in the movies. But for the rest of us, you throw the straw, and it goes, you know, in, in some way. And, and so if you do this experiment by throwing straws at a circle over there, you know, you get an answer. And, and, and uh, you know, you should be able to answer that. You should be able to work out what that answer is. Interestingly, so, so a relatively famous statistician, Bonnies, actually ended up by saying this isn't a question in probability. This is, this is kind of like a null question. If you ask this question, it's not in the world of probability because it doesn't have an answer. It's kind of a, which is kind of odd because, as I say, you can do the experiment, you get an answer. So, so here's the thing. Well, anyway, to, so, so I just want to show you. So, so Bertrand actually built his paradox based on this thing that was called the Buffon's needle. Uh, and it's a little thing where it says you, you have some sticks, so, so these are matchsticks, but if you get online, you can see people do this with you know, frankfurters or, or dogs or you know, something. <laughs> same kind of idea. Um, and, and the idea is you have some lines that are, that are straight, the, the length of these sticks, and you chuck sticks at random. The proportion that lie on the line is, uh, gives you the value of pi. Yeah. And indeed, you can do that. So here's an experiment with 17 throws. And uh, 11 out of the 34 line lines, so pi is equal to 3.1. Uh, yeah. And you can see it's relatively robust. These lines aren't particularly straight. You know, 
it really works. And, and so the, the nice thing about this to a physicist, the reason the physicists don't get tied up in all this, this philosophy about, you know, is this the right reason of method and argument and all that kind of stuff, is that physicists do experiments, and experiments have no parallels. If you do the experiment and it has an answer, that's it. And so a physicist is willing to say, this answer is true because I did an experiment and it turned out this way. Somehow mathematicians and statisticians don't have that thing. They go, oh, how many, how many angels are on the pen? I haven't seen them apart. You know, they, they don't kind of have an arbiter of reality that allows them to do this. So, so it turns out you can resolve this thing about the Bertrand paradox. So, so an easy way to see that is, is, is to, to apply a standard method that's done in physics. In fact, this is how it resolved this, this notion of, of invariance transformations. So, so one of the things you can do in physics to determine mechanical laws, like the Galilean laws of motion or Newton's laws of motion or, or the special relativity laws of motion, is you can, you can do that thing of deriving what has to happen, you know, that's usually a force and stuff moves and energy and all that stuff. The other way you can do it is to say these laws have to be invariant under certain transformations. So for instance, the Galilean laws say um, if, if, I, if I rotate, translate, and so forth, uh, move a constant velocity, the laws have to be invariant to those transformations. That's enough to determine what the laws are. There's a set of transformations, the Lorentz transformations, that say if your mechanics is invariant under this, you end up with special relativity. So it's kind of saying what you don't know rather than what you do know. And you can do exactly the same thing uh, with this probability distribution. You can say, well, nobody told us uh, where the origin was of our circle. So if the problem's got an answer, it has to be invariant for translation. I could, I could stand on any side of the circle and apparently it gives me the same answer, so it has to be invariant for rotation. Nobody told me how big the circle was, so it must be invariant to scale. And that's enough to determine uh, the form of probability distribution completely. Yeah. Uh, so as I say, this is, this is equivalent to these, to these um, invariance transformations that people use in physics. Uh, so as it, if it turns out you do that, so I, I did this little experiment uh, of, of throwing down a bunch of lines according to these different rules. And for instance, this one you can see clearly has a preferred place in the middle. The origin is a special place because the lines are thinner there. And if I move the whole thing off one way, you know, this, this lighter region would be over here somewhere and it would no longer be the same thing. So clearly this distribution is invariant to translation. It doesn't work. This one's a little harder to see as it turns out it's kind of thinner around here. It takes a little while to work it out. But this one also is is invariant to the translation. Yeah. And the only one that actually fits all these things is this one here. So it's the random radius, and so it turns out the answer must be paired as a half, and indeed if you do the experiment, that's what you get. Yeah. And so there's something going on here. So, so this, this, this resolution, which was you know, more than 100 years after Buffon did his thing, and everybody said, you know, Laplace was an idiot, kind of thing. Well, maybe Laplace got it wrong, but yet the Buffon's needle turned out to be perfectly well-stated problem that had an answer and all of these things were not right. And, and this answer was, was worked out by Ed James in this paper that he called the well-posed problem. Um, and, and so many of us in the physics world think of the, the kind of the resurgence of, of particularly Bayesian methods in the physics world is really due to, to Ed. Um, so here's a picture of Ed. I, I did, um, 
So I was fortunate enough to work with her for a couple of years while I was doing my PhD. And this is a picture of him um, uh, in that time. I think this is the picture that was taken from the fellow at St. John's. And for some reason, the, the photographer obviously thought that taking pictures up people's nose was a good idea. But, you know, other than that, it's, um, yeah, that's what it looked like. Um, but so, so Ed, Ed, I mean, I don't know if people have read Ed's theory of probability and, and stuff. Um, but he, he's become a little bit of a cult figure to certain kind of communities. Uh, despite that, I think he did some very good things that are useful to know. Um, and, and, and really, the, so, so the thing that Ed had done, like a lot of us in the kind of physics and electronics world, uh, you know, um, certainly when I was growing up, the, the big kind of exciting thing, and the big exciting thing that, I mean, I can see somebody's working on their tablet now, and I have a cell phone, and why do we have all those things? because of Shannon's theory of information that told us how to move information around the world. More to the point, I should say, is theory of communication. So, so in, the, in the 60s, there was a very exciting thing that followed through the 70s about, about um, in electronics, that it was all about the movement of information and was governed by these mathematical laws and, and so forth. Now, Shannon's theory of information built on this notion of entropy as, as kind of disorder, which came directly from statistical physics. So there's, there's lots of ideas and and kind of theory of information that allows, um, you know, our, our electronic world, this thing, to work, uh, that came directly from this, the notions of statistical physics. And, and of course, everybody, you know, working in those fields, especially in, in the time of the war, working on radar and stuff like this, thought these were just the most wonderful things. And yet, uh, at the time, in statistics, we were told that we weren't allowed to do these things. So, so I remember when I was a student, getting on to one of these open university courses about statistics. You know, they, they, I don't know if they still have open university courses, uh, but it was a guy with a you know, big white lapels and a brown cap and tie like this, uh, going on about how you weren't allowed to use the subject of notion of probability because somehow it's the devil's work, and if you do that, you're doing things that are wrong. And, well, they, they, they had reasons for it. But at the same time, people in electronics are building these ever more complicated communication systems seem somehow predicated on this business. And also statistical physics, as I pointed out, are somehow built on this. So, so Ed was concerned about this. He wanted to unify the statistical physics and Shannon's view of communication. And, and, and one of the things that we physicists don't do very well is, is defining what we do. So we, Maxwell built this distribution, but he didn't say, this is how I did it. These were the mathematical rules, and if you have another circumstance, you can apply these rules and it will give you the answer there. No, he said, you know, he gave some physics -y rules and some physics -y intuition that said we ought to do it like this and this and this. And so somehow that work didn't become a mathematical object that people would use in other places. And so that's what Ed started off trying to do. He said, okay, let's work out what's been done in the physics world put it into some kind of formal thing and see if it carries over. Now one of them was that transformation groups that I showed you a little bit before. There you are know, some others that I think are, are taught pretty commonly, one the use of entropy to form prior distributions and so forth. But, um, but with this I think, this quote that he, that he made I think was kind of important at the time was this use of probability as logic. And, and what he said was that we're able to solve problems that, that, that at that time the statistician could not solve. They said were they said were not completely formed, didn't have enough information to, to make an answer, like that Buffalo's needle, and yet, yet the opposite is true. Actually, to, to another kind of person, a completely uh, 
um, able to be solved. And, and what was the deal? Was thinking of probability distributions as the carriers of information. And, and that's probably the thing. I mean, even if you don't take over the formalism of Shannon's theory of communication, um, at the basis is this notion that you have probability distributions, and they are the things that carry, to, carry information through, through noisy channels. So there's exactly this subjective notion of, of not that the world is being random in some way, but that what I know about it is, is determined by distributions. And, and in a formal sense, um, he had rephrased Laplace's indifference between events. So, so Laplace had said if these two events are the same, then they have the same probability. Ed instead said, well, so this transformation group really says if you've got these two problems and I can map them to each other, then they must be the same problem. And that's the thing that allows you to resolve probability distributions to the functional level rather than so. So in some, in some sense, this gets around the issue of not having a, a measure on events, which is, which is the problem of the pluses. Yep, so, uh, so that was Ed. Um, so I thought I'd just show you a little example. Uh, you know, if, if all of this seems a bit philosophical, I thought I'd show you a bit more of a concrete example about uh, calculating probabilities. Um, so so here's, a, here's a simple kind of thing just to, to show you manipulation of Bayes' rule to, um, to give you an idea of why you should do this thing. Uh, and, and it has to do with, in this case, it's a little example that says you know, so, so you wake up one morning, you've got spots all over your face, you go and see the doctor, and you say to the doctor, what have I got? And he says to you, 90% of people who have smallpox have the symptoms that you have. And you know, smallpox is fatal, so you decide that's it. So that's, that's one way of saying it. But then you say to your doctor, okay, thank you very much for telling me the probability of these symptoms, given that I have smallpox. Can you tell me the other thing around? Given that I have the symptoms, what's the probability of my smallpox? And, and he goes away and does some stuff and says 1%. Okay, so that's still 1% you're going to die, but it's not a lot better than 90%. And so, so the point about this is that the probability of symptoms given disease is quite different than the probability of disease given symptoms. Okay. This is a common thing. Actually, this is a common example of things that people use in... Um, this is a kind of common fallacy that you see in, in court cases about genetic stuff. You know, they say, um, we're trying to find this murderer, and I've got this genetic test, and... And I tested you as positive to the murderer, and my test is 99.99% positive. You know, does, does that mean conclusive? So, so the 99.99 is a little bit bigger than the 90, but it's the same kind of idea. You know, is, is that actually the critical thing? Well, the answer is no. You know, thank you for telling me the probability that, I, that I'm actually given that I'm the murderer. What I really want to know is what's the probability I'm the murderer given, given this man. And, and so you can do this little, little calculation that says what disease, and, and it comes down to this thing that, that there are other ways that you can get spots as well. So one of the other ways you can get spots is by chickenpox. It turns out that only 80% of people with chickenpox get spots, but chickenpox is much more common. So, so, so chickenpox is common, about 10% of people get chickenpox. Smallpox is rare, about, smallpox is rare, about 0.1%, and that that business drives the whole thing. So, so if you now ask, write down these probabilities, the probabilities of spots given smallpox, spots given chickenpox, so these two things here, that's the 90%, 80%, the probability of smallpox, before you knew anything, the probability of chickenpox is these things. And it's now a simple manipulation by Bayesian to find out what the probabilities are. And it turns out, so here's the 1% that says, given that I've got spots, what's the probability I have? I have 
smallpox. And notice that even though the test for smallpox is, is, is better, the fact that fewer people have smallpox actually drives it. Same thing, same thing with the genetic test, you know. The, the, the issue is, so you've got to ask, you know, what's the probability of murder is in the, in the population? Relatively small, that drives this, this business in the same way. Yep. So, so, here's, so it turns out that you have a, whatever it is, a 0.988% of having chickenpox. So if the doctor's going to say what you have, he ought to say, well, it's most likely to have chickenpox. 1% likely. Yeah? So, so this validity of the test, the 80% and the 90%, uh, really is irrelevant. The whole business is driven by this, this, this distribution that says that chickenpox is, is common or a small distribution. Kind of, um, yeah, and, and so, so here's, here's the calculation using Bayesian. It's relatively easy to do, just this manipulation probability. Uh, so I thought I'd talk a little bit about uh, computing. So the other thing I mentioned in the abstract is now that statisticians have taken on Bayesian methods big time. Um, and why is that? Well, it's certainly not because of any of the philosophical arguments. So, so that's the case. It's because that now we can compute the complex densities associated with Bayesian methods. And, and what is that due to? Well, it's largely due to this guy, who was a physicist, working on physics problems, or structure, I should say, chemical physics. Well, they were working on, on the business of blowing people up. You know, that's what they wanted to do. So this is, this is a little bit after the Manhattan Project. This is kind of the next big computer. Uh, it's such a maniac, and I think this one's in New York. So if you think that computing resources now are limited, we'll check this out. This is memory here. This is compute stuff here. Yeah. So this probably has about as much computing power as your shoe. <laughs> yeah. um, but this computer was built exactly to do these simulations for sampling for probability distributions that we get out of these analyses. And, and indeed, it's kind of the, the modern version. So I thought I'd show you. I didn't want to show you any formalism about um, about how how methods work. I just thought I'd show you this little video um, that, that maybe I can, well, I won't bother too much making full screen. Um, but this is a, this is a lower dimensional um, Monte Carlo method for determining the electron density between a pair of atoms that are next to each other. And there's complicated rules for working out what that probability density is based on quantum mechanics and so forth. Uh, so, so how do you work it out? Well, well, this is the basic structure of our Monte Carlo method. So the yellow dot here is, is a random walk of an electron in probability space. Yeah? And it's leaving behind it these kind of red dots. So, so I've left a bunch of yellow dots so you can kind of see where it's walking. But over a long time, they leave those red dots. And so the density of red dots show you um, the density of the probability that there's an electron there. So, so what we would call probability density. And so this is, uh, and it's just rotating because rotating looks good. Um, <laughs> uh, but, but so this is a relatively small problem. The probability density is a function of three variables of space. That's all, yeah. So I have a three variable problem, random variable on, on three space dimensions, and, and I'm doing a random walk. And there's a, there's a clever way that we do this random walk that essentially was the invention of von Neumann, uh, which is that you, you make some random step that's based on anything you please. And then you say yes or no according to the probability distribution. And that yes or no rule, the so-called Hastings rule in his world and, and the Metropolis-Hastings world these days, though, uh, some people call it the Metropolis-Hastings-Green rule because Peter Green came up with a better version of it again. Um, but that, 
that ensures that the density of red points ends up being the correct density for the probability that you want. So, so here's a basic image of, of how our Monte Carlo methods go. There are random walk in state space that asymptotically, the time that the point spends in each point of space is proportional to the probability. And so that scatter plot that we built up there somehow is a pictorial representation of the probability of it. So, so von Neumann invented this idea, a uh, simpler version called rejection sampling, but pretty much the same. And indeed, our modern methods are basically not different from this. They're basically the same as this. Um, so, that was our, our computing. So, I, I thought I'd just show you. So, so I, I posed this question you know, why, why do statisticians now get involved in this business? Because we can do this computing. And, and we can apply it to, to all sorts of problems that perhaps you couldn't imagine. So, so every field of human endeavor where there's data measured or we're using models, everything you can imagine, you know, the, the croaking of toads to the, you know, to the, the whatever it is, is now employing this stuff. And that's why statisticians are interested, because it allows them to interpret data uh, using models in, in virtually any circumstance you can think of analyzing data. So what I thought I'd do is just show you some examples that I've been involved in. Uh, so problems where I've done calculation of things. Um, this, this is a bit of archaeology that I did with uh, Jeff Nichols, who's now in the Stats Lab in Oxford. Um, so this was interpreting some measurements of electrical resistivity over the site of the Maori Pass. So these are what in this, this part of the world would be called a, a Neolithic hill fort. In our language, it's a, it's a Maori park. Um, and this is one of the islands off, off of Auckland. This is about the size of a football field. And the archaeologists wanted to know where to dig. So here's the data that's based on resistivity. And they wanted to know where are the interesting places to dig. Where should I, where should I put a hole? And what's where? And so we interpreted this using uh, what's called a colored continuum triangulation of the plane. So, so here's a state. Instead of that three variables that tells you the position of the electron, Here's a state that's actually infinite dimensional. So it's a, it's a countable union of finite state spaces that's gained by putting down a finite number of points, triangulating them, and coloring them. So that's how I interpret pictures in the world. Might seem like a screwy thing to you, but there you are. And, and here are some samples from the posterior distribution of, of states that interpret this data. And from that, I can calculate summary statistics and predictive things of interest. So here, for instance, is a, is a kind of a scatter plot, a bit like the one I showed for the electrons for the mean resistivity under the ground. So that kind of interprets this directly. But, but here's another thing I can summarize. I, they could ask me, where are the paths? Where, where are the boundaries between one thing and another? Where are they likely to be? And from each of these, I can work out where the boundaries are and plot here a, a scatter plot where the greater density shows a greater probability that there's a a boundary between two distinct regions. And archaeologists look at this and they say, oh yes, this is where they store the food. And, this and off they go and they do this. So, so that's a case where we've done this kind of computation. Exactly, exactly this, this kind of computation. Uh, here, here's another example um, in, in what we now call uncertainty quantification. So, so here's a business of, of looking at big physical models, uh, quantifying our uncertainty and our parameters, our calibration, if you like. And then making predictive uh, statements. So in this case, uh, this is a geothermal field in the center of the North Island of New Zealand. People want to build a, an electricity plant here, and more to the point, they want to expand on this one. 
and they want to make 50-year predictions that say, if I suck out this much steam out of the ground, this effect will happen in 50 years. You know, your house won't fall into the ground, or, or the field won't die, or whatever. So, so predictions of the behavior in 50 years. And, and here are some summary statistics from calibrating this model using Bayesian methods and samples, like we've said. So here's a, a mean uh, calculation of the temperature plume under the ground. So this is roughly 6 by 6 by 20 kilometers deep. Uh, sorry, 20 by 20 by 6 kilometers deep, uh, the temperature under the ground. And here's a measure of uncertainty. So our ability to say how accurately we know this. And so, so here's, a, here's a real problem that you can do using this stuff. And, and exactly the interpretation of these things is exactly Maxwell's notion that this measure of uncertainty is exactly our lack of knowledge of what it is, not somehow a statement of the variation of what it is. So, so, it's, so it's interpretable in that natural sense. Um, so as I say, I drive an electronics group. We build stuff. Um, one of the things we build is, is small GPS tags for going on birds. Um, you want to build tags that go on birds that, that locate them to be quite light. If they're more than 10% of the body mass of the bird, they tend to it's flying and it dies. So, um, you know, if you want to tag endangered species, you can't be careful about that. <laughs> uh, so, so we build these these tags that use a, a different kind of signal processing. They don't use the traditional GPS signal processing. They use inference, the kind that we talk about here. Um, so, you know, if you turn on your GPS on your cell phone, it takes a wee while to get going. You know, it takes 30 seconds or something like that to get going. You might ask yourself, how much information do you actually need in the signal? Well, if you do that information theory uh, calculation, it turns out you need about 2 milliseconds, actually about 1.6 milliseconds. And so you can get away with turning on your GPS 1.6 milliseconds and turning it off. That's enough information to work out where you are. And the less time you're on, the smaller your battery life, the smaller your battery life, the lighter your devices. And so that's how these work. So these tags, um, they weigh about 6 grams, they run for a year, uh, they take a fix. Every, every 30 seconds or so, and we can strap these to the back of birds, and indeed we do. Um, so, so, for instance, here, here we are in Dunedin, so here's the South Island of New Zealand and Dunedin, and Dunedin is one of the few places where there's a, um, an albatross colony uh, on, on the mainland near a city that you can go and visit, and, and it has to do with uh, the Antarctic convergence. So it has to do with nutrients rising here as the cold water comes from Antarctica. It's a kind of shelf here comes up and there's lots of nutrients. Um, and so these, we stuck a whole bunch of these things, or some zoologist friends of ours, stuck them on the back of, of albatrosses that flew around. And it was quite interesting, actually. It's one of those things where the zoologist said, oh, the albatrosses are going to do this and this and this, so we, do, we need these specifications. And of course, the albatrosses do nothing like that. You know, when we measured the data and, and got it back and plotted these traces, uh, they, they do nothing like the zoologist thought, which is kind of interesting. But, but here's, a, here's a feeding ground over here, and here's an albatross that has flown in a direct straight line over this, this um, chunk of the Southern Ocean that's a quite unpleasant place to be, you know, no navigation, flown in a straight line. This wiggly stuff is where they've sat on the surface feeding, yeah, and then off they get, and they fly pretty well in a straight line there. Yeah, and we've had some others that go up to Wellington. So Wellington is, is the kind of bureaucratic centre of New Zealand, so quite a lot of albatross would go there, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> Something like that. But, but anyway, uh, so, you, so you can see this stuff really works, you know? We can, uh, so we can do um, you know, inference of this kind, 
And it really makes a difference. So, so I like this when you, know, you, you change the mathematics you do and your computer code runs faster, we can build a smaller device with that kind of thing. That's, that's some kind of tangible difference. And, and indeed, you know, we, we can do that with these things. Um, oh, you know, I just thought I'd show you a few other things out of left field uh, that I've worked on to, to make you think that it isn't all about physics and, and you know, electrons and that kind of thing. So a while ago, Jeff and I worked on this thing of, of determining the age of the European languages. So, so here's another place where you have data. So we have the modern languages, or the words in the modern languages. You have some model for how they evolved. And away you go. You know, can you infer what the evolution of languages was, and in particular the age of the first of the European language was? And, and the short answer is yes and no. Um, turns out this distribution is bimodal, and it corresponds exactly to a debate in that linguistics community. But, but it tells you all sorts of interesting things. You know, here's, well, you can see all these languages. Here's Hindi in it split off from Lana and Punjabi at some stage. Um, you know, off you go. So, so again, um, here our state space is, is the space of these, these trees uh, that interpret the evolution of languages. We can, we can do this computation, uh, interpret modern data, and get precise statements about estimates and uncertainties. Uh, and so this is the reason statisticians are interested in, in this stuff. You can answer funny questions like this. And indeed, uh, we, we did a little bit more. I helped out with this other bit of work that ended up in nature in 2006. Similar kind of thing, looking at the evolution of languages uh, and some kind of tree structure interpreting uh, the evolution of all languages um, with, with some notion of, of posterior uncertainty given by these multiple branches on these trees. So, so another kind of thing that you can do. So, that's it. I think that's. Indeed. I know, that's so right. I know this time is moving on a bit, but we have time for a couple of questions. If people need to go, then please go. Otherwise, I'm a statistician. Oh, I feel a little bit mischaracterized. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I've got to say, uh, so apologies to you. Um, I know. I know. Well, that wasn't my question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it would be fair to say that statisticians always thought base theorem is true. Got these probabilities to do this calculation. What we argued about is where the probabilities came from. And in, in your Bertrand's paradox example, you were talking about the possibility of finding this uninformative prior or this default prior. And from our perspective, you seem to think you seem to be saying that there is a definitive solution. And from our perspective, you say well, there just isn't one and you just have to subjectively choose one, there's no way around that. Yeah, and I think that's where the physicist takes a very different view, because somehow nature makes this decision. So if you do the experiment, and you can't control how you throw straws over this, you get an answer. So all of that stuff about turbulence around your straw and all the complicated things that make the motion happen mean that nature is doing something with all that complexity that boils down to some kind of distribution. Now we see that in all sorts of, of aspects. So, um, so, so there's lots of, of components in, in statistical physics that are like that, where physicists have statements that, of probability that, that they take to be true. And if you look to see where are these things established, really they're experimentally established or they're th this kind of thing. So physicists have different ways of saying something's true. You know what I mean? 
And, and so this is where I take exception with the statistician, is because nature clearly makes a decision. So, so I agree with you that in some other setting, you know, if I were the Zen master who could throw straws 100 metres, I agree with you, there would be some other distributions that you're allowed to consider. But, but there's a kind of an imperative about what nature does. And if we don't somehow able to uh, explain that, then I think all the stuff about the statistician saying, well, I don't know, therefore I'm allowed to choose one of them, it's kind of uncomfortable. Well, from our perspective, the prior comes before the data. So how could you possibly choose that prior until you've seen the data? If you start doing that, well, well, I mean, in this, so, so I'm not claiming that, that this, this field of, of transformation appearance is kind of complete. But here's a case where, really, by a broader argument, you could say that there is only a single prime distribution. I mean, Maxwell did that with, with you know, his, his distribution partners of gases. Now, you could argue about that. You could say, oh, maybe you should have made some other choice, or I'm allowed to choose one other way. But you can test that against nature, and it says this is the right thing or the wrong thing. So I think this is kind of an interesting thing that physicists have, rightly or wrongly, I'm not, but, but because physicists have the ability to do experiments to decide about these things, then that kind of trumps the whole business of saying, you know, maybe I'm allowed to choose. Now, I think we're more complicated settings, we can't <laughs> One more. So the question that immediately follows from that answer yep. is your work on the languages. What are the invariant principles or the natural physical laws? Well, yeah. So I was about to say that, um, that like physical laws, if you're in an infinite space and you have no boundaries, I can tell you what the physical laws are. As soon as you have boundaries and composite materials, all that goes to nonsense. And so you have to use those as kind of guiding principles at best. And so, so really for complicated models, there are people out there who claim that there's a theory of objective priors, which is an extension of this stuff to, to arbitrary spaces. I, I really don't believe that. Um, and, and I fall back to the business of mathematical modeling as we applied mathematicians do, which is to say that you test assumptions and validate them. And um, so that's what would have happened in the, in the um, evolution of a languages case. That's a case where if you put naive um, reference prize, as statisticians would call them, on, uh, and, and they're independent over many states, you end up with hugely informed prize on statistics of interest like the age. And, and so that's a place where you've got to do other things. You've got to do model validation in that traditional sense. So, okay, so I'm just conscious of the time to get on but do stay around and continue to pick Colin's brains out of the feeling that elements of that discussion are not going to go away immediately. Um, could I remind people uh, of this thematic semester that we're running? Uh, there are a number of seminars and other events coming up. There are some details on the website, or please talk to Rob about getting involved. Uh, and on behalf of everybody, I'd just like to thank Colin again for uh, his contribution so far to today's talk, which introduced the word plausible that I was expecting, and the phrase highly immoral that I wasn't expecting. <laughs> thank you very much.